0: Look at that question. Over the book of Hebrews, you've heard this name again and again. The name is Melchizedek. And it says again and again in the scriptures, a priest like the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek, and why should we even care? Okay, he's a guy that pops up twice in the Old Testament, pops up once in the New Testament, right there smack in the book of Hebrews. Why should we care who Melchizedek was? Let me ask you a question, church. Did God accidentally write anything in his word? Did God just happen to put a passage in there that has no meaning? Did God just sort of throw something out and we can kind of ignore it just because we don't want to look at it? The answer is no. Everything God spoke, everything God breathed into his word has meaning and has power and has a teaching for us. So let's take a look today. Who was Melchizedek and why should we care? Book of Hebrews chapter 7, church. It's going to be a good one. I've had the whole week to stare at chapter 7 and to go through some commentaries. I'll be honest. I have changed some opinions about the book of Hebrews over my lifetime in ministry. When I was younger, I had some very strong opinions. And I came to realize that my strong opinions were not the only opinions. Gentlemen, have you ever come to the conclusion that you're not always right? Whoa, we're not always right. You know why we have to keep coming back to the word of God again and again? Because we're learning every time we come more and more. And God keeps changing us in the image of what he wants us to be. All right. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. The role model for the Messiah. This is who Melchizedek was. Take a look at it. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything... First, his name means king of righteousness. I'll interpret that for you. The word is the Malek Zedek, Malach Zedek. That means king of righteousness or the righteous king. So he's the king of righteousness, then also the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. Remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected tenths from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive tents. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who received tents, has paid tents through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Very confusing very unusual and something that people sometimes look at and they go, okay, moving on. I'm going to go past that because I really don't understand what that means. But you know what? When you're doing the Bible, you have to understand it. You have to come to some kind of consensus of what it says. How is Melchizedek a role model for the Messiah? Let's take a look at it. This all begins in Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. Let me read to you the encounter which is mentioned here. It's mentioned in the scripture, but it actually comes from the book of Genesis. Just listen. Genesis 14, 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Underline that. Bread and wine. Remind you of anything? Next week is Lord's Supper, so it should ring a little bell in your head. He was a priest to God Most High. For those of you who were here on Tuesday nights when we did the names of God, this is the El Yon. The God Most High. That's is it is in Hebrew, El Elyon. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, for those of you who know a little bit about Old Testament history, the giving of tenths to a priest or to a religious order was not uncommon in the ancient world yet it has great significance in the lives of the people of Israel. The 10th was ordained at Mount Sinai when it was given to Moses, right? I know that we all love to skip. We go Genesis, Exodus. We skip Leviticus numbers. We sometimes skip Deuteronomy, and we shouldn't. All of those laws laid out in there tell people how to live. They tell them how to organize their life, organize their finances, keep their relationships strong. There's good stuff in those books. But people often skip them. That's where the tenth is found. Yet here, Abram, whose name is not yet Abraham. Interesting thing. You know the difference between Abram and Abraham? It's, it's a little breath mark. It's a hey. You know the interesting thing? The hey in Hebrew is the breath, the spirit. What changed Abram to Abraham? God breathed the spirit into him. Amen. What takes a sinner and turns him into a saint? God breathes a he into him, breathes the spirit into him through Jesus Christ. Good to have you all with us this morning. Amen. Now it says here that he is a priest of the God Most High. His name, of course, is the Malach Zedek, the King of Righteousness or the Righteous King. The interesting thing is he is also a priest of the God Most High, of El Elyon. Here's the thing, church. You can't have a king and a priest together. It's not normally found. In Hebrew culture, it is never found. The king is the king, and the priest is the priest. There's only three people in the entire Bible who are kings and priests. Y'all should know this from from Bible study. Who are the three people that are kings and priests? I know know Brother Ken knows. Brother Ken's going, I know this, I know this. The first is Melchizedek, king and a priest. The second is who, church, and y'all better know his name. Jesus. He is the king and he is the priest. Who's the third who is king and priest? You're gonna love this one. You. According to the Bible, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are a kingdom of kings and priests. You hold that position. Why? Because you are joint heirs with Christ through faith in Jesus. That makes you a king, baby. Because we we worship who? King Jesus. You are also a priest. You are a mediator of the word of God. That's why it says, you will be my witnesses. The word is martir, martyr. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, even to California. They need Jesus, too, out there. I've been to California. They really need Jesus. Anyways, y'all missed that one, huh? Never mind. Let it go. Anyway, so here's the deal. You need to pay attention to Melchizedek, because he has a lot to say about who Jesus was and also who you're going to become. Take a look at this again. So we have in Genesis, he encounters it. But who is Melchizedek? Now, in the first century, there were these guys called the Essenes. The Essenes hung out around the caves of Qumran. You know, they put some scrolls and some jars. You ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's the brothers we're talking about. Now, they had this idea. They said, well, look at this scripture right here. This says he was without father, mother, or genealogy. Now, in the Hebrew, that is apater and amater, no father, no mother. Now, that's a very weird thing in the Hebrew language, because you've got to have a father or a mother. Otherwise, what are you? You're a God. Only God has no father and no mother. If, it's just, if it just said that he had no, no father, we would consider him an illegitimate child. That'd be easy to come up with. So these Essenes, the they said, well, he had no father, he must have been an angel. He must have been an angel that was speaking to Abram. Because Abram has another encounter with an angel. Remember that one? place called Sodom and Gomorrah? But that's that's not an angel. That's the angel of the Lord. Who's that? Jesus. The angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to cream that place. And, and, And Abraham makes a deal with him. If he can find 50 righteous, how about 10 righteous? All he walks off with is is Abraham, his wife, his daughters. The son-in-laws wouldn't even go. So there wasn't enough to save the city, right? So that's the angel of the Lord. So some people think Melchizedek was Jesus come early. In fact, I came out of a school of thinking when I was very young that that's who Melchizedek was because his brother is strange. Look at this. No father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days and no end of life. I had to do some reading. See, to the ancient people... When they read a scripture, if it didn't mention a father and a mother, they got suspicious. When it doesn't say he was born and he died, they got more suspicious. So a lot of Jewish rabbis and priests started to think that Melchizedek might have been Jesus, appearing early, because no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of days. sounds like God to me, but there's another answer. Was Abraham the only righteous man on earth at that time? Was Abram the only righteous man? Consider this. There's a guy named Elijah. Poorly dressed, eating bugs. Elijah gets scared by a woman, as we all have at some point in our lives, because when women get angry, you run. I see you shaking your head. Yes, I know what you mean. Here's the thing. Elijah runs south. He hooks it. He gets to the bottom. What does he say to God? God says, why are you here, Elijah. He says, well, Lord, they killed all the prophets. Now they're trying to kill me. I'm the last one that loves you. Boo-hoo. What does God finally say to him? He says, dude, I have 7,000 others just like you who have not bowed their knees to false gods. 7,000 righteous people in Israel, even though Elijah felt he was alone because he was standing up. Here's the thing, you don't have to be a pastor to stand up for God. You can be the king of a little place called Salem and you can be a priest of God in a little place called Salem and just because the Bible doesn't revolve around you doesn't mean you're not important, amen? If you are priests and kings through Jesus Christ, your life matters even though it's not recorded. I took my men through a study once We looked at all the people, all the men's names who appear only once or twice in the Bible. They appear, then they disappear. Is that because they're unimportant? No. If the Bible mentions them, they're important. It's just that their particular calling was not to be the center of the Scriptures. Was Melchizedek important? Yes. He was important because of what he represented. He was, of a man, he was a man of authority, he was a man of power, he was also a righteous man, a man who believed in the one true God, El Elyon. Now we know later, because in verse 22 of Genesis, of that Genesis passage, Abraham says before the king of Sodom, I have made an oath before Yahweh, the God most high. Abram identifies El Elyon with Yahweh God. So that's how we know they're connected. That is why God sent this man to Abram, returning from battle, returning from liberating the captives, and he sent him there to bless him because of his obedience, and Abram recognized that God was doing great things in this man's life, and he paid him a tithe, even though it wasn't required. You see, that's how Abram was. He was sensitive to what God was doing. And Melchizedek was simply there representing the rest of God's people who were not the focus of the Book of Genesis. He stands out as a righteous man. Now, where was he living? Does anybody know where the town of Salem is? Not Salem, Massachusetts, for that. The witch trials, not that place. This is the King of Salem. Anybody know where Salem is? You know it. You've seen thousands of pictures of the city of Salem. You know why you don't recognize it? It's missing the first part of the name. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is now today where the city of Salem was then. And you know what's cool about the name Salem? If you hook it up in the Hebrew, Shalom. Peace. The peace of God. That's why he was called, this. he was the king of peace. He was the king, the, the king of a peaceful city where God reigned and where God was recognized. It says in the scriptures that any Country is blessed by the presence of God's people. We are a blessing to the United States because we worship the one true God, and we pray for our country, we pray for our president, we pray for those in authority over us. Scripture says pray for those in authority over you that it might go well with you. Now you see why this Melchizedek is so interesting. He is the king of what will become Jerusalem. He is an authority figure, yet he is also a man given to righteousness he is a man who follows God. There are other examples of men like this in the Bible. Remember a guy named Balaam? Balaam knew who God was. He just didn't listen very well. He, didn't listen. he almost got his head cut off for that too, didn't he? Not for that donkey turning to the left and turning to the right. Interesting thing was this, this malaxatic, this righteous king, he sets the example for what Jesus is to be later because Jesus is a king and he is a priest. He rules over peace. He gives peace. It is to him that we pay our lives. Why? Because notice this. In the day that the writer of Hebrews wrote this, okay, the Levites, the Levite priesthood, had been in power for a long time. And the Levite system of religion was when you get a crop, you pay one-tenth to the support of the temple. That went to support the Levites because they had no homes, they had no lands, They had no possessions of their own. Yet notice this, Melchizedek is first. He is eternal. Priests come and priests go. Priests live and priests die. We're going to find this out as we go through this passage. But it says it. This one who does not have this lineage, he is not a Levite, yet Abraham pays the tithe to him. And because Abraham represents all the people of Israel, all of Israel pays a tithe to Melchizedek. That means there's someone outside of the religious order of the day that they're going to have to recognize. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. What did Moses also write? Exodus. What did he receive on Mount Sinai? The laws, including those of the Levites. So why does God give us the Levites, but he first gives us an image of the perfect Messiah King? Because even though we have this temporary religious system, God did not want us to forget that the ultimate system of faith will come when the Melchizedek, the real king of righteousness, is coming to the earth. Go back to Genesis 3. Adam even get kicked out of the garden. What does he do as soon as he kicks him out of the garden? He says, you know what, snake, one day you're going to bite the seed of the woman, which is impossible biologically. You're going to bite the seed of the woman, but he's going to crush your head. Man got kicked out of the garden, his heart was broken, but God gave him hope in the promise of the Messiah. And just like this, he's told Abram, Go through the land, wherever you put your foot, your people will own the land, right? But Abram will never see the land. He will not live long enough to take possession, but he believes God will keep his word. So what does he do? He lets him meet the righteous king the king of peace, the perfect priest who it says lives forever and will never lose their priesthood. A priest could be defiled under the Levite system. A priest could be defiled, he could be kicked out, he could lose his position, and when the high priest died, he lost his power. But Melchizedek, it says, never dies. Now, not literally, but what he represents. He will always be a priest. That is why we look to Jesus and we go, man, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's the fulfillment of everything that we've been looking for. Let's go on. Hebrews 7, 11 through 17. We're going to keep unpacking this idea of who is Melchizedek. Okay, so he was a role model for what the true Messiah would be, right? But between him and the Messiah was a lot of years. More than 3,000 years in the middle there. So what do we have? Hebrews 7, 11 through 17. Later there was an example set up for a time. So he meets, Abram meets Melchizedek. There's the perfect high priest. Now we get to Mount Sinai and we have to have something to do in the middle, right? We have to have this intermediate thing. It says this, if then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood. Now remember now the writer of Hebrews is showing people that what? Jesus is superior to the angels, he's superior to Moses, He's superior to Joshua. He is superior to the Levites. He's superior to all these religious things that trap people. Remember, the point of the writer of Hebrews is to set you free from religion, set you free from slavery to vain religious activity. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, and that's what they were being taught in those days, For under it the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to appear? Who's he going to talk about? Jesus. Said to be in the order of Melchizedek, meaning meeting the qualifications of Melchizedek, meaning right this he's going to be a king of righteousness, he's going to be a king of peace, no beginning, no end, no father and mother or genealogy, doesn't fit the typical pattern, not of the right lineage. Sound like someone you know? Sound like Jesus to me said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron, Aaron being the head of the Levitical priesthood. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the one one these things are spoken about belongs to, here comes, a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Remember, anyone touching the altar, anyone touching the Ark of the Covenant, other than Levites, what happened to them? They died. They fried. Anybody ever watch the Search for the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones thing? They would never have got that box out the hole in the ground. You know why? The second Indiana touched it, he'd be cooked. A brother named Uzzah tried that, and he died. He laid one hand on the Ark, and he died. If you were not a Levite, you could not touch the Ark of the Covenant. You could not enter the holy place. You could not enter the Holy of Holies. You would die. So even, you know, that's just that's so amazing and here we says right here, fourteen. Now it is evident that our Lord came from who? Judah. He is descended from David, not from the Levites. And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on legal command concerning physical descent. Now remember, Stent. Remember this. He's dealing with people who are. Jewish Christians living out among the world, right? But what's out there among the Jewish Christians? Gentile Christians, right? Sometimes Jewish Christians had a problem of looking down on Gentile Christians because they thought they were the real deal and they were fake. They were only half Christians, you know. They were sort of stepchildren. That's kind of how they saw it. He says, yeah, but this one who came is a priest not based on legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. What Jesus promised, I will give them life and that eternal, that everlasting, that abundant. That's where the claim of Jesus on that priesthood comes from. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How many Melchizedekian priests existed when the writer of Hebrews wrote this? How many priests in the order of Melchizedek still lived? Right, none, because there were none. There was one priest in the order of Melchizedek, and it was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the only priest in the order. So Jesus had to be something extraordinary. He had to be something amazing if he's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. I mean, everybody had read about Melchizedek, but they dealt with the Levites every day. They dealt with the Levites every time they went to the temple. They'd almost forgotten the power of Melchizedek. Now, see, this was great. This is from a different tribe. Consider this: Whatever background you come from, wherever you come from, does it matter if your parents were Christians? Is that how you become a Christian? You become a Christian because they are. There's a lot of people sitting in churches today, are only sitting in churches because mom and dad drag them by the ear and make them go. You ever got dragged out to church? I got dragged out to church. Yeah, you know that's why this issue is longer than the other one because mom got to hold of that one and pull me to church. <laughs> Thank God she did, because it finally got through my thick head, you know? I'm just saying. But this is it. All of us come to Christ, not because we're Hebrews, not because we're descended from Abraham. This is a blessing to Gentiles. If you are not from Jewish descent, this is a blessing. This means we are accepted, because our acceptance is not based upon our genealogy and our descent. Jesus was not a Levite. He was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of David. And that's exactly who the Messiah was meant to be. Even though the religious orders would only have picked their own people, the word of God said it's going to be someone unique, like Melchizedek. That's why he's so critical. Melchizedek breaks all the the rules. He sets a completely different rule that God chooses to use anyone they choose to use. Do you have to have a seminary education to teach a Bible study? No. Do you have to be well-spoken to be a Bible study leader? No. Do you have to have the Ten Commandments memorized and witnessing tracts memorized in order to share Jesus? No. God isn't looking for pedigrees and degrees and, and, and membership in certain clubs. Guess what? There's going to be as many Baptists in heaven as there are Pentecostals, and there's gonna be as many Presbyterians as there are Lutherans. And you know what? Just because you're in a Baptist church doesn't mean you're saved. Okay, if the rapture came right now, well, I don't wanna think about that. That'd be, be bad. because I don't know who all would be there. Ask yourself the question if the rapture came this moment, if God took away from the earth all of those, irregardless of where they were born or their church heritage or anything, Only those who have placed their full faith and confidence in Jesus Christ would you still be sitting here when the event was over. I saw a video that a youth pastor made, and it was him preaching, and he set the whole whole church up. What he did is he had someone on the lights, and he had someone ready to kill the lights in the the room, right? He had all all the doors blacked off, and he said... And for all you know, right now, this moment, Jesus could come back and he slammed the pulpit. Someone hit the lights. All the lights went down for 30 seconds. And when the lights came back on, the pastor was gone. And so were half of the kids in the sanctuary because they had sneaked out the back doors. The people that were left sitting there, all they saw was the pastor's Bible on the ground and half their friends gone. Now, that was really great. It got the point home, but they had to have the carpet steam cleaned because about 20 kids wet themselves. They were that scared. They were that scared. But think about it. If it came today, it doesn't matter what your parents were. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you descended from. You know, my dad was an auto worker. My grandfather was a coal miner. I'm not descended from great, powerful people. But it all depends on what God chooses to do. God chose Melchizedek to go out that day to Abraham. And God chose someone to come to you with the gospel on the day that you accepted Jesus as Lord. This is a huge encouragement. Even those not of the tribe of Abraham can still be counted among those descendants of Abraham. The Bible says not all of Israel are of Israel. That makes no sense until you realize not everybody who says, I am a descendant of Abraham, therefore I automatically go to heaven, not all of them believe and not all of them are truly the children of Abraham, because the children of Abraham are the children of faith. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Not the tribe, not the family relations. Have you ever met someone named Cohen? Have you ever met anyone with the last name Cohen? Now, from where I come from in Michigan, common last name. But it's not common. Do you know why the name Cohen is special? Any Jew can tell you this one. Although most of them have forgotten it. The word Cohen comes from a Hebrew word, Kohanim. Kohenim is the Hebrew word for priest. If you meet someone today whose name is Kohen, they are descended from the priests of Israel. How cool would that be? Your descendants were those who stayed in the temple, who worshiped before God, who kept the embers lit, who kept the fires going, oil in the lamps, who's made the sacrifices. Before the... What a great lineage. Guess what? Even if you are a Cohen, without faith in Jesus Christ, it means nothing, nothing. Maybe your dad was a pastor, or your grandfather was a pastor, and your mom played piano in church. That means nothing, because it's not about your descent. It's about your faith. What do you believe? Where do you bank your entire hope for eternity? That's what's so important about this, this setup of the Levites. They were put up for a stopgap measure. Guys, the church is just here for a stopgap measure. We are not the final product. What you see today among us, we're not the final product. We're, what, we're, we're works in progress. You know, there's a, a sweatshirt I see at the gym all the time. It says, don't laugh, I'm a work in progress. Of course, you still laugh when you see it, but it's funny. But that's it. We're all works in progress. We're all in the process of becoming like Jesus. Jesus is the end result. Where we are right now, we're just on the way. We're just moving down the road. So this this religion that was created was just created until the time of the Messiah. Here's the problem. When the Messiah came, did people go from the stopgap to the full? Did they go from the half-priest to the full priest of faith? When they actually saw that Jesus was the Messiah, there were many priests and Levites and leaders who saw what Jesus did, they knew who he was, but they refused to leave the Levite system. Why? Because under the Levite system, they had power, they had authority, they had free food, they had respect in the community, and even though they knew Jesus was the Messiah, this is what they knew. Is anybody equal in his day to Melchizedek? Even Abram, the one who is called the friend of God, even he bowed down to this one who was the Melech Zadok, the king of righteousness. See, and that's why the priests in his day did not come to Jesus because they were so proud, so arrogant. They believed they were so good. They had kept those 600 plus laws. They didn't want to come to Jesus and lose their place because before Jesus, they were nothing. Before Jesus, they were just like any other Gentile sinner, like any tax collector. That's why they didn't come. They held on to the old order of things, even though the final answer had come. Let's finish this up right now. Hebrews 7, 18 through 28. Then one came who exceeds the role model. One goes beyond the expectations. If one like Melchizedek had come, they would have been great. But this guy was even better. It says, so in 18, so the previous command is annulled. What command is he talking about? He's talking about the command for the Levites to offer the sacrifices, right? Right? Jesus is there on the cross, right? He says what? I thirst. As Jesus says I thirst on the cross, the high priest is across town killing the last sheep for sacrifice. And what does the high priest say? I thirst. They give Jesus wine, they give the priest wine. The high priest kills the last sheep for sacrifice. Jesus prepares to give up his spirit. What do they both say at the same time? It is finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, and he died, the appointment of the Levites was annulled. Why? Because truly one greater than the Levites had come. There was no more need to go to priests. There was no more need to rely on temporary sacrifices because the permanent, lasting sacrifice had been given. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. The law cannot save us. The law only convicts us of our sin. You realize that, right? Nobody can please God by keeping the law because nobody can keep the law. My wife asked me, if I say to myself, Christ is the center of my life and I sin, am I a liar? I said, well, you know, Christ is still the center, the center of your life. You've just drifted off the point. You've got to get back to the point. You know you're off it when, you, when you do that. So it's, it's not a matter of being perfect all the time. We can't do that. It's a matter of knowing where that perfection is. He says this, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath. If you were a Levite, you were a Levite, and that was it. When you became 30, you began to serve in the temple. That was just the order of things. It was because of your birth that you did what you did. But he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Who is the one who swore to Jesus, you are a priest forever? That was his father. That was God the Father. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. For those of you who question whether or not you can trust in your salvation, you need to underline that verse. Cuz it says right here, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The old covenant was based on keeping the law. The new covenant is based on who Jesus is and what Jesus did. If you ever think that you can lose your salvation, if you ever question whether or not you're going to see heaven, if you have given your life to Christ, you've repented of your sins, you've come and asked for cleansing and salvation, this says Jesus is the guarantee that you're going to get what he promised you. Jesus don't lie. The devil can lie to your mind. The devil can lie to your brain. He can make you feel lost when you're found. But you need to reject that demon in Jesus' name. You need to get it straight. So Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented. um, Many now who have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. So when you died, your priesthood was over. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Just like Melchizedek. Melchizedek died. The only reason his death isn't recorded is because Abraham moves on and never sees him again. So we don't know when he died. But he was a man and he died. But Jesus, though he dies, he raises again on the third day. See, Easter's coming, y'all. We already had we already had Fat Tuesday. And then we had our Ashy Wednesday. And now we're counting down the 40 days to Easter, amen? amen. we're getting there. Jesus holds that permanently. When he rose from the dead, boom—he is a priest forever, just as he's always been here. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him. Underline that, church. When someone tells you you can lose your salvation, you go, "Excuse me." The book of Hebrews chapter seven says right here, verse twenty-five: He is always able to save those who come to God through Him, story over, point closed, no discussion. Once you are safe in Christ, Matthew says, man, even Satan can't pry you out of God's fingers because he clamps on tight. It says this, since he always lives to intercede for them, for this is the kind of high priest we need. See if Jesus fits. This is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for the sins of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. This is good stuff, church. This is the type of assurance that we need to live in and walk in and cling to and tell our friends about. You know, it says right here, the high priest offers this sacrifice daily, it says. What he's talking about is this. Once a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He offers the sacrifice for the people on the Day of Atonement. Yes, we all know that one, right? Check your heads, yes, make me feel better. If you don't know it, ask me later, I'll tell you about it. The high priest is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies, That's why they put that rope on his foot in case he drops dead; they can haul his dead body out. Here's the thing you didn't know: up to a week ahead of time, the high priest is secluded, away from everybody, especially away from women. I don't know why that's necessary, but that's what that's what the records say. He is secluded in a place where he cannot be contaminated or affected by anything. The reason for that is the high priest had to be perfect in mind and body. He had to be spiritually purified and cleansed, physically purified and cleansed, before he set foot in the altar in the Holy of Holies. Now, notice this. Was the high priest of Israel sinless? No. What's the first sacrifice he makes? For his own sin. Then he offers the sacrifice for the people. That's what a high priest did every year. Why? Because the blood of animals only covers the sin. It doesn't erase it. it. doesn't erase it. Those of you who grew up Catholic, you know how terrible it is to be under the oppression, the demonic oppression of the sacrament of confession. Because you go into the priest, bless be Father, for I have sinned. It's been five, six, five minutes since my last confession. I went outside. I saw a girl in a bikini. I lusted, and now I'm guilty. Not, not that I'm repeating anything I've ever said before, but there we go. Anyways, here's the thing. Even though you make that confession, the second you go out the door and you're angry at the cab driver or you see a girl in high heels, you're guilty again. You have to go right back in and confess again. Can you live in the confessional? No, you can't live in the confessional. But if your salvation is dependent upon your acts of confession, then you are a slave to the law, just as the Hebrews were, just as the Levites were. Perpetually, constantly begging God to forgive you. When it says right here, that Jesus ensures our salvation. He is always able to save those. And you don't have to go to a priest because this high priest, Jesus, he made one sacrifice for everyone at all times on one occasion. When he sacrificed himself, because he was sinless, he was pure, he had committed no wrong, he put himself on that cross, he sacrificed himself as no high priest could, and because he was sinless, his sacrifice was perfect. Now that means whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that word saved is amazing because it means you will be saved that minute. Five minutes later, you're still saved. Five years later, you're still saved. Here's the thing. Most Christians live defeated lives because they are constantly weighed down by the lie that Satan says, you can't do it, you're not good enough, you're never going to be good enough, why even try That's the lie Satan tells us again and again and again to wear us down. Guess what? When you are truly born again by the Holy Spirit, then you are safe. Are you perfect? No. Are you sinless? No. Are you going to make mistakes? Yes. That's why we have 1 John 1, 9. If we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Get that one? That's why I cling to that thing. Because daily it is a fight to stay pure in mind and body. And that's why the high priest was never good enough. That's why once Jesus come, there was no more need for the temple. There was no more need for any of that. In fact, what's amazing to me is this. You realize at the time Jesus walked the earth, most likely there was nothing in the Holy of Holies. There was nothing in there. You see, we believe from historical records then most likely the Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the temple when the Babylonians attacked, and it was hidden in a place on the Temple Mount. The Jews in Jerusalem at the Temple Society claim that they have found it exactly where the Bible says it is, under the Temple Mount in Jeremiah's Grotto. That means they were making vain sacrifices into a room behind a curtain which held nothing. That's what vain religion is. Vain religion is going through all the motions. They would stand before the great curtain, and the, court, the curtain went from the floor all the way to the roof. Guess what? On the day Jesus died and the temple veil was torn, top to bottom, from God to us, all the priests had to look at their lie because there was nothing in there. Because in 70 .AD, when Titus's men tore down the temple, there was no. Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. That means all those religious rituals, all those vain prayers, all those vain sacrifices were being offered to nobody on nothing, and the people have faith in a vain religion. That's where people are today. We have faith in vain religion. But guess what? Melchizedek was the real thing. And that is why Abram offered to him the tenth, the sacrifice that was due to the man of God. And that's why the Levites were just a vain shadow. But then Jesus comes and he fulfills it. I mean, you get this? I mean, Psalm 110 one says this. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Lord. This is David talking. Of Yahweh God to my Elohim, to my mighty one. Sit at my right hand. Nobody sits at the right hand of the king unless he's the, the wife or the, the direct, you know, child of the king. Nobody sits there. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend our mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Then Yahweh has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek, in that same order, in that same eternal priesthood where you are the perfection that Israel's been waiting for. So you say, now do you care who Melchizedek was? Now, now do we, we care that these obscure little passages get read? Because consider it. The example of God's servant was always before Israel. And it wasn't the Levites. It wasn't Aaron. The perfect example of what God wanted was Melchizedek. That's why he's mentioned in Genesis, and the Levites don't come along till Exodus. They always knew what the perfect Messiah would look like. Always. God doesn't hide things. Even the service of the Levites was not enough to complete the work that God intended. The Levites only held down the fort. They provided a sacrifice system that allowed people to know their guilt and allowed them to take care of their guilt before God by faithfully believing in what was being done. Finally, Melchizedek was an example to all the faithful of whom the Messiah would be, of who the Messiah would be. Melchizedek was just showing them, by his life, what the Messiah would look like. And only Jesus was the priest, in the order of Melchizedek. So there's only been two people to fit that order, Melchizedek and Christ. Consider this today. God went to such trouble to mention Melchizedek in Genesis. Puts it right in Abram's way as Abram's coming back. Puts it in Abram's heart to sacrifice. Then he reminds us again in Psalm 110 that the Messiah would be just like Melchizedek. Suddenly he gets more important. Then Jesus comes and he is everything Melchizedek was. So, of course, it's important. So what I want you to think about today is this. When you go back home and you reread this and you look at this and you realize that the old law was passed away, the old Levite system was passed away, ask yourself this question. Am I clinging to the true Messiah or am I practicing vain religion? I know a lot of people that get up on Sunday morning and they put on their suits and their ties or they put on their dresses, and they do all that other stuff, and they, they go to church, and they sit to the church service, sometimes awake, sometimes asleep, and they go home, and they say, my job's done. Church is not when you get your job done. This is where you come to celebrate God's goodness to you. This is where you come to learn about God's love for you, God's power that beats in your chest, that lives in you. Then the work starts the second you leave the door, church. The work's out there, baby. The work is out there in your workplace, among your friends, among your family, the people you hang out with. That's where the work is. The work's out there. This is the fun stuff. This is the easy stuff. This is where you figure out that God went to extreme measures so that you would know him, that you would know his Messiah, and you would know the power and the security of being in Jesus. Go back to those verses again today, and you will know the power of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time and this hour. God, I praise you for everyone who is here today. Father, I thank you for our friends who are visiting. I thank you for those who have blessed us and come from Russian RTP to show us that we're not alone in this fight. Father, I pray for the churches that use this building. Lord, I thank you for revolution as they reach out to people that we can never touch or contact. Father, I thank you for GGCF, for the great effort that they have made to reach the people's from all over the world that we have done. And I thank you for bringing people to us to hear the gospel of Christ. And Father, we praise you for Russian RTP, that they are going to prosper. Father God, they're going to grow. They are going to reach hundreds, if not thousands of Russian-speaking people and their children and their grandchildren. And there will be a home in this building, Father, for all the nations, that all nations may come and hear about the one who is greater than Melchizedek, greater than the greatest priest of the Old Testament, greater even than Abraham who was the hope that all Israel clung to. Father, now as we, as we sing to you, as we praise you, as we give you glory, Father, help us in our hearts to turn to you. Father God, if we've been fighting you, if we've been resisting you, if we've been putting up a front against you, God, break it down today. Help us to see that you loved us so much. From Genesis through Revelation, you did everything to reach us with the love of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see that the law cannot make us right, the law cannot perfect us, the law cannot give us hope, only in Jesus are we safe for eternity when we put everything into him. Father, bless now as we sing and stand. Father, if there's an emptiness in our hearts, help us not leave this place today until we have filled that with Jesus. If there's any questions here today, Father God, may they be talked about and answered here in this place, that we may go out with rejoicing, and that we may go out to serve this area in Jesus' name. Amen.